breaker one, breaker one might be crazy, but I ain't dumb. Crazy cooter coming at you. Hey, fast line, fast track. Y'all got your ears on out there? John Deere to New Holland. Just look at the load I'm hauling. Hard work, I hit it harder. Ain't nothing new for a backwoods farmer. Sun up to sundown. Backing up traffic all the way to town. Camo hat and a farmer's tan. Cause I'm a working man. Welcome to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group, your innovative consumer resource and marketing partner of choice for the evolving agricultural community. Now, here's your host, Brent Adams. Well, welcome to another episode of Fast Line Fast Track. It's great to have you with us. This week, we hear from U.S. Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack, who spent time this week with members of the National Association of Farm Broadcasters to discuss a number of hot-button issues, including coronavirus assistance, carbon sequestration, and trade. Jesse Allen is talking soybeans in this week's Market Talk report, and the hot rod farmer Ray Bohax has another installment of Bushels and Cents. We also hear the music of true honky-tonker Dennis Ledbetter. You won't want to miss a moment of this one. Let's go. Well, first up this week on Fast Line Fast Track, on Wednesday, I had the opportunity to be a part of a discussion with U.S. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack just hours after he made an announcement about changes to the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program aimed at more evenly distributing that aid. During the discussion, which was held virtually with members of the National Association of Farm Broadcasters, Vilsack addressed a number of pressing topics in front of him as he continues to build a staff and get those folks up to speed at a time when he's still dealing with the fallout of a pandemic. I wanted to share some outtakes from that discussion, beginning with his summary of the changes to CFAP, which will now fall under the new USDA Pandemic Assistance for Producers program. It includes at least $6 billion towards initiatives, many of which are geared towards small and socially disadvantaged producers, specialty crop and organic producers, and timber harvesters. It also will provide assistance to others in the food supply chain and producers of renewable fuels. This really is designed to, to uh, encapsulate uh, a, a set of decisions made by USDA uh, that will is designed first and foremost to help those uh, a bit more than who have already been helped under the previous COVID uh, relief packages, uh, perhaps provide greater outreach to those who might have been qualified for participation in programs but didn't know about them or didn't fully uh, participate because they didn't know how to, uh, and also to extend help uh, to many uh, in agriculture and in the supply chain who previous to this had not received uh, any help from COVID uh, relief packages or perhaps received very, very little. Uh, we've divided this thing in, into four basic steps or four parts. Uh, the goal of us, uh, for us in this effort was to try to provide as much help as equitably as possible to as many producers as possible who have been hurt by COVID. Uh, and uh, given the d- diversity of agriculture, the size of operations and methods of production, this was not an easy task, and it took us a, a bit of time uh, to sort of get our arms around what the need was, how much resource was available, both through COVID packages and through normal USDA packages, and then try to put together a comprehensive plan. Uh, we are using resources from COVID. Uh, we are using resources uh, from previous COVID packages. We're also using resources from some of our more, more traditional USDA programs. So four parts. First part, uh, we're obviously focused on making sure that we're carrying out the formula payments under CFAP 1, 2, and AA, uh, rolling those into this more comprehensive effort 
Uh, this is going to allow us to make payments uh, to farmers uh, who are already received the benefits of these programs. Vilsack said some producers who have been approved for aid could start seeing payments beginning soon. Rules have already been written, uh, not uh, much uh, administrative uh, work to be done here. Uh, so we're in a position to make payments and, and to begin making those payments very, very soon uh, in the month of April. Uh, payments will involve under CFAP 1 uh, payments to cattle producers. Uh, they don't need to apply. Uh, they don't need to take additional steps. This is uh, essentially uh, providing additional resources to what we anticipate would be about 410,000 producers, about $1.1 billion of additional support and help. Uh, rates for these producers will be published uh, on a website at farmers.gov slash CFAP. I would encourage cattle producers to take a look at that to determine how much they might be entitled to in, a, in addition to and above what they've already received. Uh, in addition, uh, we will also uh, uh, this April begin the process of paying out the $20 per acre to eligible crops identified under CFAP2, uh, crops that are identified as either flat rate or price triggered crops. Now this includes a wide array of crops, alfalfa, corn, cotton, hemp, peanuts, rice, sorghum, soybeans, uh, sugar beets, wheat, many other products. No need for new applications. Based on the CFAP2 uh, eligible acres, anticipate 560,000 producers receiving about $4.5 billion of additional assistance and help. The secretary then talked about some of the changes that would be coming to the coronavirus aid program. Uh, we also recognized uh, that there were some folks who uh, perhaps were involved in, in prior uh, COVID packages where the formulation, the calculation may have potentially created a situation where some people wouldn't get the kind of help uh, and assistance that they needed. And for that reason, uh, we're going to basically make some adjustments. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, there was a, 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 an opportunity for swine producers and contract growers, poultry, to receive payments, uh, additional payments. The problem was the formula that was used in, uh, in initial uh, efforts really created a circumstance of inequity between the size of, of operations. And so we're going to try to smooth that out a little bit and try to make sure that uh, we set up a formula that will allow for adequate resources and help uh, to swine and contract growers. On sales commodities, which are a wider range of, of, uh, of products, um, when we calculated the base upon which your payment would be made, uh, we didn't allow them to take into consideration uh, insurance that they may have received, indemnity payments, uh, NAP payments, or WIP uh, plus payments that they may have received. We, we think that we should allow them to recalculate, if you will, uh, and we're viewing this process and allowing them to essentially go uh, back in time to basically shore up uh, uh, the the amount of loss that they had in fact to sustain so that they get a payment uh, that makes sense. Uh, there are other uh, adjustments like this that are in uh, sort of the first uh, bucket, if you will, of this four-part effort to try to provide pandemic assistance to producers. Um, the second bucket, uh, we're taking resources that would uh, that come from traditional uh, uh, USDA programs that are specifically designed for local and regional food systems and basically getting them out the door in an expedited way. Uh, there's hundred, uh, roughly $500 million that we've identified of new funding from these programs that we're going to try to expedite getting out the door quickly, which should provide help and assistance uh, to, uh, to uh, small, uh, mid-sized producers, specialty crop producers, and others. It's uh, a five, uh, $75 million for farmers, uh, uh, for training and outreach that's designed primarily for socially disadvantaged farmers to give them 
uh, some additional information and, and training. Uh, that money is going to be provided $100 million under our local ag marketing program. This is uh, designed to provide assistance for direct-to-consumer uh, marketing, uh, benefiting local and regional food markets. Uh, $75 million in the Gus Schumacher Nutrition Incentive Program, which is designed to encourage uh, more consumption and more purchasing of, of fruits and vegetables. Uh, an opportunity uh, as well for a specialty crop, uh, specialty crop, crop block grant, $100 million uh, to go out to state uh, commissioners, uh, secretaries and directors of agriculture for additional assistance and help. So that's the second bucket, $500 million to try to encourage more marketing and more opportunities. The third bucket, um, and, and within that $500 million, there's a series of other, other steps. So we're money for APHIS uh, to, uh, to uh, assist in disease, animal prevention, additional resources for ARS and to partner with the Texas A&M on a One Health Initiative, uh, and $80 million to provide some assistance in the cotton industry as well. Uh, under uh, a program that was established under the Economic Adjustment Assistance for uh, Textile Mills uh, Program. So uh, a lot of different unique opportunities here to provide help and assistance to get folks who are in the supply chain or are critically important to agriculture generally in the, in the country, getting them assistance and help. The, the third bucket is a $6 billion bucket where we don't have the rules necessarily written because these are people and groups and entities that have not yet received money or haven't received sufficient resources from USDA. So we wanna give them an opportunity to participate because they too have been impacted and affected by COVID. Uh, I'll give you an example, a dairy donation program. We recognized during the course of COVID uh, how difficult it was for certain uh, commodities to donate uh, to uh, food assistance. The transition from food service to food assistance was difficult. Um, we're creating resources under a dairy donation program uh, to make it a little bit easier to remove that disincentive for donation in the event we have uh, you know, future problems uh, and we learn from this experience uh, so that we're ready, better prepared uh, in the future. There is an opportunity to reimburse folks who had to euthanize livestock uh, and poultry uh, during this very tragic circumstance. Um, uh, an opportunity to, to assist timber harvesters uh, and, and, and haulers who uh, clearly were hurt and impacted by the COVID the biofuel industry that uh, obviously didn't receive any help in the previous uh, COVID packages, but yet uh, experienced significant difficulties because of COVID, because of trade, a variety of other issues. Uh, also opportunity for additional resources to help especially crop producers, beginning farmers, additional resources for uh, organic and urban agriculture as well. Uh, opportunities for us to, in essence, take $6 billion uh, divided uh, appropriately and equitably in a way that provides help and assistance to, at all levels, if you will, uh, of agriculture. There'll be additional resources for uh, protective equipment for farm workers and, and processors and who work in processing facilities. Uh, there's an opportunity for uh, even seafood processors to be engaged and involved in this. So it's very uh, comprehensive. Uh, we're gonna take a look at our the resiliency of our food supply system and figure out ways in which we might be able to provide greater resilience. Um, that might be helping uh, processing facilities. It might be looking at ways in which we can expand processing capacity. Um, the opportunity as well for us to help food banks uh, and other users of, of perishable items in particular, other uh, uh, opportunities for farm to school, uh, restaurants, food banks, a, a wide variety of folks in the supply chain that are going to be helped and assisted with this effort. Vilsack wrapped up his discussion about the coronavirus aid by talking about reopening the CFAP2 application process for disadvantaged producers. And then the final bucket is essentially recognizing that under CFAP2, uh, our outreach probably needs to be improved, particularly to socially disadvantaged producers. And so there'll be an opportunity to reopen CFAP2, if you will, 
a new 60-day uh, application uh, period uh, that gives those folks who may have been left out uh, and left behind an opportunity to uh, participate in the program. So uh, that's a lot of information, uh, but the, the whole goal here is to make sure that when we're providing COVID relief, we recognize that COVID has impacted and affected virtually every aspect of agriculture uh, and the supply chain. And we're trying to do our best, along with the American Rescue Plan, uh, to do what we can uh, to bolster that supply chain, to provide the help and assistance, to keep people on the farm, uh, and to make sure it's equitably uh, administered. Chandler Equipment. For 51 years, Chandler Equipment has been manufacturing excellence. The finest quality in pull type and truck mount fertilizer lime spreaders and litter spreaders, fertilizer tenders, seed tenders, and litter conveyors. They also sell a full line of Raven Industries Precision Ag products. To find out more about the full Chandler product line or to find a Chandler Equipment dealer near you, visit ChandlerEquipment.net or give them a call at 800-243-3319. Following his remarks, Vilsack took some questions from farm broadcasters, beginning with Todd Gleason with WILL in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. You mentioned this week uh, the CCC might be used to stimulate some form of carbon sequestration. Is this one of the options you plan to present to the president as it pertains to the tackling the climate crisis executive order? And do you have ideas on how that might work? Well, first and foremost, uh, we're going to make sure that before we formulate any plans, uh, we're going to do what we what the president has directed us to do in the uh, in the executive order and what we would normally do even without the executive order, which is ask for input. Uh, so we put out in the federal registry a series of questions that we want uh, those in the farming community, those in the forest community to respond to in terms of how we best can help and assist in creating uh, support for climate smart agriculture. The president has set forth a fairly uh, aggressive uh, vision of a net zero emission agriculture by the year 2050. This is incredibly important, I think, for the long-term viability of markets for us, both internationally and domestically. More consumers around the world are demanding uh, proof, if you will, of sustainability. And if America can get to a point where we are operating a net zero emission, uh, we would not only help uh, our climate effort, but I think we will also make our products more, uh, more marketable uh, in both the domestic and, and foreign markets. Um, carbon bank is certainly one of those options, uh, but I would say that uh, any effort in terms of the carbon uh, sequestration or carbon bank has to be designed specifically for farmers. Um, this is not a situation where the existing carbon market system would, would be particularly helpful. Um, it's uh, very cumbersome. Uh, there's a lot of paperwork. It's really not designed for farmers. The, the credit value is not high enough to justify farmers taking the financial costs that might be incurred in embracing some technologies or some practices. So what we need to do is figure out how we can structure uh, an effort that speaks directly to farmers based on the input that they're going to give to us. And then basically creates the kind of incentive that's of interest to farmers, whether it's uh, basically the ability to have credits sold through a reversed auction process or whether we have a guaranteed price for credits that provides the incentive for those interested in purchasing the credits or we have a circumstance where we're essentially funding and financing the improvements on the farm so the farmer is not in a position to have to incur additional expense or a combination of those factors or some other factor that might make uh, this market appealing. Then making sure that we walk before we run. Uh, we're not going to do this in a big, bold, huge way until we know how it might work. So if we do it, when we do it, uh, we'll start uh, relatively small uh, so that we can learn from that experience and build on it so that we have a viable and trusted opportunity 
uh, if that's what we decide, decide to do. Uh, sequestration is incredibly important. Uh, we're not going to get, uh, I don't think, uh, to our national goals without incorporating in some way, shape or form carbon sequestration in the rural lands uh, that represent roughly three quarters of the land mass of the United States. Tremendous opportunity for us to increase farm income, create new job opportunities, not just the only way of doing this. I think there's a lot of uh, opportunities to uh, reuse and reclaim uh, methane. I think there's opportunities for us to turn agricultural waste into a variety of different products that creates new revenue streams and lowers the greenhouse gas uh, footprint of farms. Um, I'm excited about this future. I think it's doable. And I think, frankly, the farm community is ready for this if it's structured right and if they are if they feel like they're part of it. Uh, and that's what we're, uh, we're, we're focused on doing. Kara Hart with the Red River Farm Network in Grand Forks, North Dakota, then asked about specifics regarding aid to the biofuels industry. Well, that's the reason why we're not in a position today uh, to, to provide the details, because we're simply announcing that as we look at the allocation of this $6 billion, biofuels and assistance for biofuels will be part of it, part of that $6 billion disbursement. So it gives an indication to the industry that we recognize that they were left out of previous uh, uh, packages. They won't be left out of this package. We're still in the process of deciding the, the, the details of this. Um, we're going to obviously get additional input. We're going to from from all factors uh, that have been that will be part of this six billion dollars, and then make try to make a determination as best as we can to provide as much help as we possibly can uh, to folks. And that may be that we complement and supplement whatever it is we're doing with the six billion dollars from uh, other re, uh, other programs, as we've done with the five hundred million dollar pot that we announced today. That may be part uh, of something that would be in addition to, if you will, the six billion. Just as the five hundred million is separate from the six billion, um, so it's six point five billion total uh, for that for those two buckets. Um, so it, we're not yet in a position to say precisely how we're going to do this. We're just in a, we are in a position to say we are going to do something. We're going to do something meaningful for the industry because we understand and appreciate they suffered uh, through a very difficult time. Brian Almer of The Barn in Colorado then asked about a timetable for appointments to state and regional USDA positions. Well, if it were up to me and me alone, uh, we'd have those done by now, but it's not up to me. Uh, the reality is every administration goes through what is called the Presidential Personnel Office. They have roughly 4,000 positions they have to fill. They've had over 50,000 people uh, basically apply for those positions, so they're working through the process. Uh, you know, frankly, we're, we're focused as well on getting our undersecretaries in position. It's going to take a while. Uh, I will say this, uh, that in terms of my previous experience as secretary, uh, we are further along in terms of getting people in the office, uh, if you will, in, in USDA today than we were at, at a comparable time, uh, if you will, during uh, my previous stint as secretary. So progress is being made. We're doing it pretty uh, uh, effectively and efficiently. Uh, there's a lot to it. Uh, there's a lot of vetting and a lot of review uh, to make sure that you're getting the right people. There are a lot of interests that have to be uh, reached out to. It's not just what I think, uh, who, who I think the secretary, the state director should be for uh, for FSA and the state of Iowa. Uh, there are a lot of folks who have input in that, as they should. There are a lot of people who might be suggested that we might, I might not think of that would be great. Uh, so it's getting input. Uh, it's analyzing that input. It's making sure that people don't have something that might uh, disqualify them from participation and then making a decision, uh, basically making sure that you're not creating uh, additional issues with that decision and then making the announcement. I'm hopeful uh, over the course of the next couple of months, we'll see uh, these appointments begin to roll out.
and it takes time. Josh Scramlin of the Midwest Farm Report then asked the secretary about the U.S.'s monitoring of African swine fever, which is still a lingering issue in China. Uh, so it feels like there's a lot of different info coming out of China about African swine fever each and every day. It feels like one day it's getting better. One day it feels like it's getting worse. Ever since you've taken over as secretary of ag and you have all this info in front of you, I mean, how would you summarize the situation of ASF in China right now? Well, uh, I did actually had a chance to visit with the Chinese Ag Minister uh, earlier this week, and I asked him about the status of African swine fever. And this is what he told me. He told me that they have it under control. Now, I would expect him to say nothing different than that. Um, you know, I think I suspect that what we have is a situation where there are probably some hot spots uh, that are taking place uh, in China. H having said that, uh, the reality is he, he advised me that the Chinese pork prices are coming down, which would suggest that they are, at least are seeing an increase in supply. Now, some of that may be coming from pork they're purchasing, and they are purchasing a lot of pork. Maybe that's the reason why prices have come down for their consumers, but I suspect it's also because a portion of their industry is back online. So I think the truth is probably somewhere in between. Uh, they don't have it totally under control, but I don't think it's anywhere near as, as devastating as it was perhaps six, nine months ago. Stu Ellis then asked the secretary about his plans for travel during his tenure. Your predecessor uh, was somewhere on the road almost every week uh, and just wondered if you are going to or planning on maintaining a, a very similar travel schedule where you will uh, be out with farmers and agribusiness and the farm media on a regular basis. Well, it certainly will be uh, with farm media on a regular basis. Um, you know, in terms of travel, obviously, a lot of it has to depends on how often and how frequently and how soon all of us can get vaccinated to the point where uh, we feel comfortable, uh, we meaning the collective, we feel comfortable traveling uh, more uh, and providing opportunities to be with farmers and ranchers. I'm sh I, I, when I was secretary last time, I visited all 50 states. Uh, I don't know that that will necessarily be the case this time around. I would hope that it would be. Um, but COVID may have an impact on, on how soon I can resume uh, aggressive travel. But I think anybody that watched me for eight years knows that I was out and about and that uh, I was available. So that's not going to change. John Harris with Farm Journal Broadcasting then followed up on the carbon issue, asking the secretary about the difference between a carbon market and a carbon bank. Well, I, I think the difference is that they, that uh, and Robert, if he were here, would say the difference is the carbon market isn't designed for farmers. Uh, it's, I alluded to it earlier. 135 million uh, credits, only two and a half million credits uh, devoted to agriculture because the carbon market as it exists today has not been set up as uh, to incent or encourage farmers to participate. Uh, I think a carbon bank, uh, if you were to set one up, would have to be set up in such a way that it was designed for and to benefit farmers. Uh, and that means a perhaps a, a slightly different design a slightly different implementation, a slightly different pricing system or incentive system built into a carbon bank that would, would be different than a carbon market. Uh, all of it designed to create a new revenue opportunity for farmers. Uh, and and that I, I think that's the key. Uh, that's why we're asking for input. That's why we're looking at different ways in which it could be set up uh, so that the incentive would be significant enough and the hassle would be uh, less uh, than it might be on a, on a, a traditional carbon market status. Um, we would also, I think, probably look for partnerships, uh, ways in which we can encourage those who are interested in, in seeing agriculture and American agriculture lead the way globally. 
uh, to basically assist us uh, as we set this up. It doesn't necessarily have to be solely USDA. Uh, there can be partnerships formed as well. Uh, which may be slightly different than what you might see in a, in a market situation. Vilsack then was asked about addressing a developing situation between the Mexican government and U.S. potato exporters, as the Mexican government has delayed a decision that could potentially let U.S. potatoes and other fresh produce products into Mexico, possibly in violation of the USMCA trade agreement. Well, the second person I talked to from the standpoint of foreign ag ministers was the Secretary of Agriculture of Mexico. And the first topic that I brought up uh, with the Secretary uh, after basically talking about the importance of USMCA enforcement and implementation was the issue of potatoes. Uh, right now we are waiting, uh, we uh, collectively again, uh, are waiting on a uh, decision uh, from the uh, Mexican Supreme Court as to whether or not the Mexican government at the time they established a rule that would have opened up more uh, opportunities for our potato growers, whether uh, they, the, that rule was, was uh, contested by the potato industry in Mexico. It's gone up through their court system to their, their final court. We're waiting for a ruling from the final court. Uh, our hope is that it's a, a positive ruling. Uh, the Secretary uh, Villalobos suggested that he was confident that it might very well be a positive uh, outcome. We'll see, uh, it may or may not. Um, but if it is, then that would open the door for opportunities. If it's not, uh, then the second uh, process that we've been engaged in is uh, correspondence with the U.S. Trade Representative's office, and I'll have an opportunity uh, uh, later this week to visit with the uh, newly confirmed trade uh, ambassador uh, to encourage her to do what I think she's already uh, inclined to do, which is to make sure that there is uh, enforcement of the, uh, the terms and conditions and spirit of the USMCA, not just on the Mexican side of the border, but also on the Canadian side of the border as it relates to wheat and dairy. Uh, so I think we have issues with both of our uh, USMCA partners about implementation. Farm broadcaster Tom Cassidy from upstate New York then asked the secretary to further discuss planned aid for disadvantaged farmers. I'm wondering about the updated pandemic assistance for producers reopening CFA P2. I'm curious if you have a sense of how many producers were left out of those uh, previous rounds The uh, and uh, what kind of total uh, we're looking at is... Uh, is folks that might not have uh, been able to participate before? Well, I don't know that we necessarily have a, a good number on that. Uh, well, obviously, the, the amount of socially disadvantaged farmers is a relatively small percentage of the overall farming population in the country based on, on the surveys. Uh, I think based on our uh, loan portfolio, it, it represents uh, 11% and maybe less than that from a standpoint of total population. Um, so I, I don't know that we have a specific number, but what we do know is that a lot of folks didn't understand or didn't appreciate um, uh, that there were opportunities for them to part to participate. And here's you know here's what it may be hard for people to understand. And this is why we're this is why this issue of equity is important, and why people have to understand why we're going to have a lot of conversation about it. There is no question, and there's absolutely no doubt about the fact that discrimination occurred uh, in many parts of the country uh, directed at socially disadvantaged farmers for many, many years. And over the course of time, because of that discrimination, because of acts where people were denied loans or their loans were processed uh, very late in the production season or their interest rate was higher or there were other barriers that were placed in front of them that weren't you know, placed in front of other farmers. These farmers basically were, couldn't get themselves in the same possible circumstance to be as productive as other farmers have been. So over time, 
the gap between these folks who had full advantage of all of the programs at USDA on a timely way and those who didn't has grown. And what has also grown is the fact that these folks over here may not fully trust USDA. So we, we have work to do to rebuild that trust relationship. Uh, and we have work to do to basically help them get to a point where they can take full advantage of USDA programs. So we want to go the extra mile as it relates to COVID because we want to send a message that we get it. Uh, we understand and appreciate there's been a cumulative effect of discrimination over time, and we want to make sure that we're dealing with that in a fair and equitable way, starting with the fact that we're allocating these resources. Now, just consider this. Here's why we're doing this. If you look at, at folks who are self-identified, in other words, people that go into the USDA office and when they apply for a loan, they check the box and they say they're white or they say they're African-American, okay? Self-identified. If you look at the self-identified population of COVID, people who got COVID assistance, who self-identified as black, Asian-American or whatever, 99% of the money 99% of the $38 billion that has already been spent and invested in producer assistance, 99% went to white farmers. 1% went to socially disadvantaged farmers. And if you want to carve it down to African-American or black farmers, one-tenth of 1%. So I'm, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't great in math, but I was good enough to think, Maybe, maybe we need to make sure we did everything we need to do to make sure that folks had a chance to participate. So 99% of 30, $38 billion went to one group. And surely, you know, those folks are the big producers and they got lots of acres. No, no question that they're entitled to help. But my guess is if we had better outreach, those percentages would be different. Now, I don't know how different, much different they'd be, but I'm pretty sure that black farmers would get more than one-tenth of one percent of the resource. Finally, I was able to ask the secretary about the priorities for newly confirmed U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai. Are you talking about Catherine Tai earlier? You spent the past few years focused on exports. Uh, from where you stand, what are some of the biggest trade priorities that need to be focused on here over the next couple of years? Uh, implementation of USMCA expansion of the Japanese trade agreement to eliminate the disadvantage we currently find our beef producers under by virtue of the fact that we've sold a lot of beef to Japan early in the year. We're now faced with a, a tariff that puts us in a disadvantage in that market based on, uh, on, on the current trade agreement. Maintaining some relationship with China so that the Chinese purchases continue at pace and pick up so that they are consistent with the phase one responsibility, looking for opportunities to expand new relationships in the United Kingdom and in Southeast Asia and potentially in Africa. And while we're doing all of that, uh, we need to understand that the secret sauce of, of trade, in my view, is making sure that we have enough people in these markets, giving us the insights necessary for us to understand precisely what those markets need and want from us and that we basically respond specifically to that. We have enough partnerships with folks and entities in country so that we not only have ourselves being promoters, but more importantly, we have people from that country, from that region promoting US 
agriculture and more, uh, more promotions, more opportunities for us to showcase. Um, and we talked earlier about the sustainability message. We have a good sustainability message today. We'll have a great one in the future. We wanna make sure there are plenty of venues, if you will, for the articulation of that, of, of that commitment to sustainability and animal welfare and so forth. So I think that's in a nutshell uh, where the focus ought to be. World Ag Expo Online is not just one week. We'll be here all year long with new information, seminars, links to exhibitors, and more. Mark your calendar to make sure you visit the show website every month. Want to get monthly reminders of updated news and information? Go to worldagexpo.org to sign up for the email newsletter. More than 600 online exhibitors coming from 48 states and 65 countries. Attendance is free for the online show throughout 2021. Just go to worldagexpo.org. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, it's time for another Market Talk update with Jesse Allen. This week, we're talking about a scarcity of soybeans. Jesse, tell us more. And thank you very much, Brent. Another Market Talk update here on Fast Line Fast Track for this week. And looking ahead, uh, we have a big report day on Wednesday. The USDA reports are coming out. And uh, we talked with Bill Biederman with agmarket.net on a uh, episode of Market Talk last week. And we were looking at a few different factors uh, going into this report, including the fact that if things continue the way they're going, we could run out of soybeans. Here's what Bill had to say. Well, Jesse, right now, uh, USDA is at 120 carryover. We're at 114. But reality is, if you stop your demand pace right this second, you're going to be about at minimum of 60 up to 80 million bushel drawdown from the 140, which puts you well below pipeline. I mean, you got to have about 100 just to keep the trains and trucks full and the, the pipeline going. <clears throat> and that's only been tested one time. And we got down to a 90 million stocks and uh, the market had to do a real job of rationing. Well, we take a look at this market trade. And if I'm a producer, you know, I'm getting ready for spring planting, you know, I, and obviously going to be spending a lot of time in the field. But uh, with the way this market is setting up as we head into this prospective plantings report, do you have any advice for them? Should they get some strategies in place, lock in a floor? Should they wait a little bit if they've made some sales already on new crop? I mean, what are some thoughts you have for our producers here the next couple of weeks? Well, th this is one of the most volatile reports of the year. Um, and this year will be no exception. I mean, if we have the tightest, if we have the type of stocks report that we expect, it, it'll show less inventories out there than what we think. That'll be very bullish yield crop. Now, on the other hand, how, how many acres are we going to plant? I mean, we all know that this is the most profitable year we've seen in years. And, and we all know everybody's going to take advantage of that and plant their neighbor's front yard when they're sleeping. So, you know, it, it's going to be a, a, a tough one. Personally, I think that the way the spreads have traded in the last two weeks and the way we've we've gone to certain price levels, I think we've factored in a lot of the surprise. So I think the real surprise could be a surprise of the surprise, right? So it's a bullish report. We jab higher. And if we close soft, I'd be a seller for sure. Absolutely. But going into this report, it's a good idea to have stuff sold. And what we've done is we've recommended making sales and then purchasing some call strategies against that that are cheap. You're still in the game if it goes up. And if you're not comfortable with doing that, some guys aren't comfortable selling cash because they don't know what their yield to be, get some puts bought. And just, you can buy short dated puts. You don't need to spend 40 cents. You can spend 15 or 10. And I think that's a great 
point you mentioned there with short dated puts, and I know some producers aren't necessarily familiar with that, but buying a short dated put option or a short dated call option, if that's the case or whatnot, or whatever they're looking at, you know, those are out there and can be kind of attractive, especially in a volatile market like this. Like you said, if you don't want to spend the 40 cents for a put, you only want to spend 15. Uh, can you maybe talk a little bit about that for producers who might not understand it? Can you give us a, a yeah, absolutely. Break? So, like we're trading at fourteen twenty one right now. I can go to a to a fourteen ten short dated put, which means it's all based on the May contract where it's trading, but it expires on April first, which is the day after the report. So you, it allows you to get through the report. Well, because it's so short dated, it's, it doesn't cost a lot. I mean, I can do a 410 put, which is right where we're trading basically for 14 cents. You know, if, if I'm afraid to spend 14 cents when we're trading at 14 plus dollars, I, I need a psychologist because that's cheap insurance. That is very cheap insurance. I, I, I love the analysis there. No, it's it's very true. And you know, looking overall at all of these markets, whether it's corn, soybeans, I know wheat has seen some pressure with getting beneficial rains in the plains. Uh, but you know, wheat having a nice day on Tuesday as well. And obviously, you know, cotton, milo, sorghum. You throw all of these crops in there that are fighting for acreage. Um, I would almost say that this is probably the most volatile report we've seen for prospective plantings in quite some time, not just, uh, you know, for just the last couple of months, Bill. Yeah. If we come in, like we're at 92.75 on corn, we were at 92. We bumped it up just a little bit because of the recent rally we've had. And I think 93 would be max. And I think that's about the max that we can physically get out of what's in PP and set aside and everything else. So the reality is this. Let's just say it comes out at 92 or less. Oh, my. I think that's friendly. I really do. I think it has to be above 92 to even be remotely bearish. Um, it, with 92.7, we're keeping our carryover down around, well, uh, I don't, I don't want to spill any beans here yet, but I'm guessing it'll be, you know, hard to get over 1.6, okay? Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, if we look at the soybean acreage, you know, most people, if they're at 92, they're like a 89 or an 88 or something like that on the beans. We're at 91.1. So we've brought in all but 1.6 million acres that's out there. We've taken everything back into the growing pot. And <clears throat> we've only set aside 1.6, which is historically very low. We've got a 91.1. Uh, if you have a 49, I'm just punching this in while we're talking, a 49.5 yield, you're still only at 134 carryover. So we've got to have a 50 plus yield and 91.1 million acres to be bearish. And that's going to be hard to do. I think the record, we're looking at uh, 92, that'd be 93, a little over uh, 103 million acres. Um, so, you know, that, that, that's at the top end of historical corn and bean acres. I think 102 is. And again, those are comments with Bill Biederman from an episode of Market Talk last week. You could find more on demand, markettalkag.com, and on all of your favorite streaming sources as well. For another edition of Fast Line Fast Track in Nashville, 
I'm Jesse Allen. And you can find Jesse's daily market updates at markettalkag.com. Again, markettalkag.com. And you can find him by searching Market Talk on Facebook. He also appears on the American Ag Network, and you can hear him host Your Ag Today, weekday mornings about 6.50 a.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Satellite Radio, Rural Radio, Channel 147. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, it's time once again for another installment of Bushels and Cents with our buddy, the Hot Rod Farmer, Rainbow Hacks. Don't forget, you can check out all of his great multimedia content at FarmMachineryDigest.com. Welcome to Bushels and Cents, a weekly podcast from the Farm Machinery Digest. I am your host, Ray Bohax, the Hot Rod Farmer. And never forget, it is not what you make, but what you keep that counts. Most larger operations use GPS mapping of their fields for soil type and testing, variable rate fertility, and then compare that data to yield maps. I am going to suggest that you add another category, soil compaction. Using the locating data along with a penetrometer, qualify the compaction in those spots for an entire year at different intervals. This simple step will prove to you the worth of proper tire inflation pressure on your ground. Seeing is believing when it comes to compaction and yield loss. Agriculture runs on machinery, profits on reliability. Visit FarmMachineryDigest.com where steel and soil meet. And don't forget, Raybo Hacks has launched Farm Machinery Digest Radio on Sirius XM Rural Radio Channel 147. It airs each Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern and again on Sundays at 6 p.m. Eastern. So I hope you'll go and give him a listen. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, we head on over to the musical side of the house where our special guest this week is a throwback in the vein of Haggard and Jones, a true honky-tonker who's helping to keep traditional country music alive and well. He has some music that's currently climbing the independent country music charts worldwide, and we'll talk about that a bit later on. But first of all, Dennis Ledbetter, welcome in to Fast Line Fast Track. Man, I've been excited about this interview. I've been wanting to do this, and I knew it was coming up, and I'm really glad to be here. We're excited to sit down and, and spend some time with you. How have you been? I've been good. I just got back from Muskogee, Oklahoma. I was up there on a day job for about eight weeks. It got a little cold up there. Uh, is it still like Haggard sang about? No. There's, uh, they smoking marijuana in Muskogee. <laughs> <laughs> that dispensary is everywhere. <laughs> well, I tell you what, uh, you talk about that. You've got an interesting job aside from your, your uh, country music gig here. Tell us a bit about what you do there. Well, I've been working on steam turbines and generators since 1976. Uh, I'm a field engineer. We go into power plants and take the units apart and clean them and inspect them and repair them and put them back together. That's a big job. It is. It's a, it's, it's a very interesting job. If I didn't enjoy it, I wouldn't be still doing it about 45 years, something like that. You're starting to get the hang of it is what you're saying. Yeah. It, 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 I, I think I can do it now. Well, before we get going this week, I want to kick things off with a song from Dennis Ledbetter from the stage of the legendary Ernest Tubb Midnight Jamboree in Nashville, Tennessee. This is his song, Opposite Walls. Dennis, tell us a bit about this one. You know, that, that song was a came. It, it took a while to write that song. I was sitting on my back porch one night and I can't, I had the hook in my head, but uh, I sat down with uh, some songwriter friends of mine, T.W. Hale and uh, Chris Bellamy, and uh, we, we, worked this song out and i was i was really really pleased with the way it came out and uh it ended up being the title cut on my album and 
was first release off the album and went right up to number one with the, on the independent charts. So it did it did well. Got a lot of airplay. As a matter of fact, it stayed eight weeks at number one. Uh, that's a hard feat to accomplish. Yeah, it is. And here it is, opposite walls. Dennis Ledbetter on Fast Line Fast Track. The silence of indifference breaks my heart in two. I know that I still love you And I pray you love me too But when we go to bed at night Preparing for the fall My back's to yours and yours to mine And the silence says it all Opposite walls The muse to all my songs Your smiling face, your sparkling eyes That always brought me home But somewhere in this dance We both fell out of step I can't believe with all we share The only thing that lives Is opposite walls We're gonna turn this thing around I'll sit aside My foolish pride Knock the wall between us down Let's pretend we just got married Start over here now Renew our love together And make a solemn vow No opposite walls Wow. 
I told you all this dude is country right here. Good stuff there from Dennis Ledbetter. Yeah, that's a country song for sure, isn't it? With my buddy Mike Dunbar on the bass guitar there. Good. Yeah, Mike was there. Mike, Mike was a, actually, he was a, the session leader on that thing. And that was a T.W. Hale in the background doing the acoustic and the, and and the backup vocals. He was a co-writer on the song. Uh, and, he, and he co-produced the album. Such a good group back there. Such a great song to kick things off. Well, I tell you what, Dennis, you were born and raised in the great state of Louisiana and a lot of great music to come out of there over the years when you think about the Louisiana Hayride and Johnny Horton, Farron Young, Webb Pierce, and our friend Margie Singleton, all the way up through Sammy Kershaw and Brooks and Dunn, Trace Adkins, and Tim McGraw, and the list goes on and on. Tell me about growing up in Louisiana and about how country music first influenced you. Well, I was born in Shreveport, Louisiana, actually, not far from the Louisiana Hayride. And uh, I did get an opportunity to go back there in the 80s and sing at the Louisiana Hayride. I enjoyed that a lot. But uh, my dad was in pipeline construction, and we moved around a lot. But we, we were in Louisiana, Mississippi, Texas, East Texas, and different places, but uh, a lot of places in Louisiana. And, uh, you know, there's three distinct Louisiana. There's North Louisiana, there's South Louisiana, and then there's New Orleans. Yeah. So we, I was born and raised in North Louisiana. That's why I don't sound like a Cajun. <laughs> but my mama was a Bienvenue. That was her maiden name. She was she was full-blood Cajun. So I'm a half-breed. I'm half Cajun and half redneck. <laughs> uh, that that uh, gives you quite a musical pedigree, though. We do. I mean, uh, I country music was just always big for me. I, I never purposely listened to anything but that. You'd have to be raised in a cave not to hear other music, but I didn't purposely dial a radio to nothing but country. Uh-huh. Who were some of the first artists you remember listening to? Well, you know, I think uh, George Jones has been the biggest influence that, that I've ever had. I hope you have actually felt some inflections in that first song there yeah. that, that might have reminded you a little bit of something that he might have done. But George Jones uh, was my favorite, obviously. Conway Twitty, Merle Haggard, uh, Thurin Gosden, my goodness, you know, yeah. Mo Bandy, those kind of guys. But uh, I I love all of the old the the older artists. I you know back in the, you know Hank senior of course and then hank jr and randy travis and folks like that but uh lefty frizzell you know all of those guys i just love their music and so many great artists when did you decide to start singing yourself and then uh, when did you decide to make a career of it well i started singing i mean i loved it i started singing back in the probably 1978 ish time frame mm-hmm. uh, I, like i said i'm 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 an engineer and I was on the road a lot and I'd be out and I'd find me a club that have a nice, uh, have a decent uh, band there and get to know them, develop a relationship and let them get me up on stage. And I just started breaking out like that. And I did that for a long time because I, I, I had my day job. I I wasn't doing anything full time in the music. I started writing in about 1980, uh, my first song was called the turban cowboy. That was the very first song I ever wrote. And, uh, and then I had a, a tune that did really well for me. It uh, was called, if you drive me to drinking, I'll buy the gas. And it still does well for me. But, uh, that's how I got started. And, you know, I, I did some recording in Jackson, Mississippi. I did some in Memphis 
and I finally got a, a session, a four song session in Nashville back in the eighties, 84, 85 time range. Uh-huh. Uh, got an opportunity to do the, you can be a star show in Nashville. I really enjoyed that. And then we did the, the, the Wrangler star search in Jackson, Mississippi, things like that. I did, I did what I could and still, you know, keep the day job going. Sure. What was it like going to Nashville in the mid eighties? It was killer. It was just so, so fantastic. And it's, it's still, it's still fantastic. When you, whenever you get an opportunity to go into the studio and you're working with A-list players, I mean, it's just amazing. It's, it's the kind of thing that if you could bottle that high that you get on in there, you could make a fortune off of that. Well, a bit earlier, you talked about your love for George Jones. And a few years ago, you cut the song, The Greatest Country Singer of Them All. Tell us a bit about the inspiration behind this one. Well, I would like to be able to say that I wrote that song, but I did not. That song was written by Jimmy Payne and Lobo, uh, very good songwriters out of Nashville. Uh, Jimmy worked for uh, a company out of Nashville in the 80s that uh, did, he, they promoted indie artists to radio. Mm-hmm. I was doing some, uh, they, they, I was one of their clients. They had, uh, I had a couple of songs that were being promoted to radio and I ran into Jimmy and, uh, he had just cut that 45. He had just cut that song mm. and I had released it and I got a copy of it and I fell in love with that thing. And I, and I converted it to a cassette and then I converted it to CD and then I converted it to digital and, and I'd listened to it a lot and I loved it. So when I got ready to go into the studio for, with opposite walls, I called Jimmy and, and he and Lobo did a rewrite on it because it, it, it had been written before George had passed. So it had to have some, do some tweaking to it. But uh, I'm just proud that Jimmy gave me an opportunity to do that song. I love it. I never sang a song before about the singing star. But there's one among the legends that my feelings can't ignore. His songs will make you happy, or they'll chill you to the bone. A gift to us from Texas, George Possum Jones. And Yeah. 
But George, you'll always be the greatest singer of them all. And I hope people don't forget that. He what? Oh, they won't forget it. Anybody that was ever a George Jones fan won't forget George Jones. Man, that's good stuff there. Well, tell me about Dennis Ledbetter, the songwriter. So many of these songs are whiskey drinking songs and hard luck songs and songs about struggles. They're true to the legendary country genre. How much of this material comes from your own journey? A bunch of it. Yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of it. Um, I've been married, divorced twice and uh, traveling. And I don't know, it just, you you get to the point well, I, I was burning the candle at both ends pretty good too for a while but uh those those things that happen in life you know they they make you want to write a song or do something with it yeah uh, so i would i would think that most of the songs that i have are are, are basically based in on on real life and you know they were you have to take some uh sometimes when you you make up stuff, you know, you know, you gotta, you gotta make the song sound right. But the basic idea behind the songs was, was real life. Yeah. And not necessarily my life, but the life I'm, I'm watching around me, you know, the things that are happening to other people and the things they say and they do, uh, it all comes from real life. Yeah. And that kind of leads me into my next question. What, what makes a good country song? What are the elements that, that you feel like it needs to be true to traditional country music? It, it has to be real life. It's got to be something that people can relate to. And just like in any music, but particularly in country music, you know, there's not a subject that you can c come up with that hasn't been written about in country music. Yeah. So I look for a hook. I look for something that, that, that'll grab you and, and pull you into the song. And, and I'm trying to tell the story about a subject that's been sang about many, many times, but say it in a way that, and it, say it in a way that nobody else has said it. Mm -hmm. 
and that's that's what I'm looking for when I'm trying to write. So who are you listening to these days? You know, I don't listen to a lot of uh, I don't listen to a lot of mainstream country. I really don't. Um, I like a lot of people. I like uh, I like Brad Howard. Brad wrote a song, one of my songs uh, that I recorded. And uh, I like uh, Richard Lynch. Yeah. I like. Uh, Just had him on the show a couple of weeks Mike ago. Biker. I like uh, Scott Southward. Uh, I like I like a lot of the people that are that are involved with the AWA, Chuck Cusimano and and if you go to the you know if you go to the the I2I records and look at all the folks that are on the AWA, I listen to all of their music. Uh, I make it a point to listen to independent artist music, and I really don't even tune in. Uh, I don't tune tune in the, the the music that's mainstream anymore. Yeah, you know there's some you know there's some good ones out there. But I don't. I spend my time with uh, supporting my my independent artists. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, as is the case with many of the guests we've had on this show, uh, you know, I, I did want to highlight your affiliation with the Academy of Western Artists, and you're nominated as a finalist for the Pure Country Male Artist of the Year at the 2021 show, which is going to be held virtually March the 30th. Of course, you won that award last year. I did. That was that was that was a blast. And then back in 2017, I was I won the uh, uh, Pure Country Song of the Year for a tune called "Tell Me I'm Wrong." So I've been very very fortunate and blessed to, by the folks with the, you know that are affiliated with the AWA, and it's been a great organization. And it, it, there's it's just a great way to network with uh, independent artists. Well, and you're also a finalist in that Pure Country Song of the Year category again this year. I didn't know that, Taylor. I, didn't, I didn't know that. Uh, I don't know. I know I was nominated, but I don't, I don't think that the, the five finalists have been decided. Yeah, well, that, yes, and uh, before anybody panics, that that was a uh, that was a misspeak on my part. You you were a nominee in that I, category. I, they I, have not announced the finalists before. Announced the five finalists yet. So. Before anybody wants to start sending me messages, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> I, I, I retract that statement and we'll clarify it for the record. Uh, a, a nominee, which even to be a nominee in that category, when I went uh, down looking at the names in that list today, some pretty incredible names. And if you and if you look at that list and you ask me who I'm listening to, that's who I'm listening to. That's the kind of folks I'm listening to. And it, it, it's just from top to bottom. That list is a great list of, of folks. And uh, you just uh, you, you, you can't uh, can't discount any. We've had a number of them on here a number of times. And you, you mentioned some folks like Lonnie Spiker that we haven't had a chance to get on here. Uh, just going to keep working my way through that list. And I hope everybody will come back every week and, and join us as we as we continue to highlight some of those artists, because, uh, you know, we've talked about this on the show before, you know, I hear a lot of times, well, country music is dead. Country music is changed. It's not uh, my flavor or whatever. Uh, true traditional country music in the vein of some of these guys that we've been talking about here recently, Haggard and Jones and, and uh, Waylon and Willie and all those guys, it still exists and it's very powerful. You just have to, to know where to find it. And it's quite abundant out there. Uh, especially uh, on the internet, on Spotify, uh, on all these streaming services, and a good place to start is with the AWA. Yeah, and it—I mean, it's all over 
the internet. I mean, I've been seeing your your different things scrolling on, but I mean, you can get all of that you know, good music like that on iTunes and Apple and Amazon and Spotify and Google Play and Tidal and Napster and Pandora. Yeah, I've got a I've got a station on Pandora where, you know, they play a few of mine every now and then, but they're just it's just. Uh, it's a great little station because they play a lot of Hank and Alan Jackson and Randy Travis and Conway Twitty. And it's, you know, just all mixed in with, with, with those guys. And it just, it sort of freaks me out after George gets through with the song and one of mine comes on and I get to sing right beside him. That's a good feeling right there, huh? Yeah, it is. And uh, also give a shout out to some of the, the folks like our buddy, Billy Bowles out there, KSSL and, and Lubbock and also Scott Weichel and HD Ainsworth and some of these folks that are out there putting that music out there too. Cause we've got a lot of DJs out there that are, uh, are, are still passionate about that music. And they, they are. And you got Stan Edwards out in Florida and mm-hmm. different, different folks like that. But those are the people that are, I mean, they have to have content. People like yourself and the people you just mentioned, those are the people that are helping us keep country music alive. Yeah, most definitely. Well, you talked earlier about, uh, you know, getting into to the studio with, with some, some quality players. Do you enjoy that craft of recording music, actually getting in the studio and, and, and working with, with uh, not just the, the players, but the engineers and everybody that it takes to get uh, a product out the door? I have always said that, that I'm not really very talented, but I'm pretty good at developing a team and, and, and getting people together that are way more talented than I am. And, uh, that is one of the most wonderful aspects of, of, of music for me. Anyway, I love, I love the recording sessions, but it's not just going into the studio. It's the whole process. Mm-hmm. You, know, you sit it, you sit on your back porch and you sing a song acapella and it sounds like, not not much you know and then the next time you get it there and you do an acoustic guitar version of it and you know you keep it keeps progressing and as the song progresses and and then the end result when you take it into the studio and you got those magnificent players and pickers and like you said producers and all of those people that it takes to to make that happen yeah it's just it's just exhilarating. I mean, I love it. I, I like the studio as much as I like performing live. I, I really enjoy the studio. Uh-huh. So you started performing just here and there in the, in the late seventies, but your debut album didn't come out until uh, September, 2013. What, uh, what, what gives for the big gap there? Well, I, you know, like I said, I had two wives and five kids and a day job and I didn't have a whole lot of time or, extra money to, to do what I wanted to do with my music. Uh-huh. And I just did, you know, I did what I could do. And then, uh, in 2009, I, I retired from, from a power company and I started my own consulting business and I got to the point where I didn't have to work with about maybe 12 weeks out of the year. Mm-hmm. And, and it, I had, uh, some financial resources and some time to, to really devote to my music. And that's when I tried to start getting serious about it. Mm-hmm. We recorded the, the the first album actually in 2010, and uh, we tried to shop the, you know some of the songs around, trying to get some cuts in Nashville, and without any luck. And I finally said, "The heck with it! I'm just gonna I'm gonna release it on my myself." You know, uh-huh. so, so but and we we were 
that album was so successful for me in terms of the amount of airplay that I, it just hooked me. I mean, I was gone after that. So I'm going to either, uh, I'm going to continue to try to record and, and, and write and pro produce new music and send it out there to the DJs until I die or run out of money. And I hope I run out of money first. <laughs> we well, put out that debut album. If you drive me to drink, I'll buy the gas in September 2013, and it was an instant hit. It yielded five number one singles on the New Music Weekly charts. I mean, that had to even surprise you to grab that many and that kind of success out of the gate with the debut album. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a fantastic album, man. And the whole album was good. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm partial, but it was a good album. And, uh, yeah, it had five number one singles off of that one. Uh, two off the second one, one off of the EP, and I've I've got four on the current album, and uh, working, you know, I, I still got three or four songs off of this album that's going to be released before I release a new album. Wow, well, I tell you what, yeah, it is one thing to go out and do that on that debut album, but another thing to uh, put out a second album and and get that kind of response. Uh, from from fans and DJs, you know, you you had three number one songs on the second album, which is "My Life Is a Country Song." Right. Uh, did you feel like you could replicate the success of the first album on the second album? Well, I was I was hoping that I could improve myself every time I go into the studio, uh -huh. uh, and and I think we did. I think we did well. I don't. I actually believe the first album was a little bit more successful than the second album, but I wasn't at all displeased with the, with the progress and the, and the, what happened with the second album. It's got, it had some great songs on it. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, I did an EP, uh, a four song EP and I, I toyed with some, uh, virtual reality videos on that. I don't know if you've seen those or not, but, uh, we had a bunch of virtual reality videos going with that. And some people liked it. Some people didn't, but I had fun with it. They were fun, and I didn't get a chance to upload one of those, but I tell you what, anybody who, who wants to uh, see some creative stuff there, uh, go uh, uh, check out Dennis on YouTube. Those videos are all out there, and uh, you can go go give those a view because they're, they're creative. It's neat stuff. I, I thought it was fun myself. I enjoyed it. Anytime you can uh, think outside the box and, and bring some, some of that new age creativity to, to some of this traditional music. I, I, you, know, I think. We, you know, what we were really hoping is that maybe, you know, these, the, you know, this group of folks that like the virtual reality videos and, and, and that kind of thing, maybe we could pull some more fans into the, into the music. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think any, anytime we can do anything to kind of bring that new audience along, that's that's always the goal here. And it seems like you, you're one of the artists that's really been focused on that because, you know, quite honestly, without that, I mean, this whole genre is just going to going to die out in a decade or so. So, you know, it's always encouraging to see a new crop of uh, artists and, and fans coming up. And I'm encouraged. I've, I've met a lot of young guys lately uh, that, that are into that are doing traditional country. I'm, I'm really glad to see that. I don't want to see it die out when all of us die out. I want the, those younger guys to come up and, and get into the traditional country too. Yeah. Talking to a, a local kid here the other day and uh, his name was Trey Penley. Good, good kid. Very, very talented. I, I listened to him play and 
I told him, I said, man, when I get back from Florida, we got to do some co-writing together. Cause I like, I like the way he was putting his words together. He's a good musician and uh, got a beautiful voice. And I want to, I want to try to work with him and, and see if we can't knock out some, some good traditional country. Well, you pique my curiosity whenever he's ready to share any of that, uh, send him our way. He's, uh, he's got some stuff out there on YouTube and all of that. His name is Trey Penley. We'll give Trey a, a, a look here and see about getting him on here too, because we're, we're always all about exposing some new artists here. And I'm and, trying to get into the studio this summer. And uh, while I'm in Nashville, I'm going to do some writing, some more writing, but I'm going to try to co-write a song with Scott Southworth. There you go. That'd um, be a hit. We've been trying to, we've been talking about it, but I want to, I want to do a song, a, a co-write with him. And, uh, I, I love his music. I like Scott's music. He's a creative, creative guy. He's we, We've had him on here two or three times now, probably more than most guests that we've had on, just because I enjoy talking with him. Oh, he's funny, too. He's a funny guy. I understand that they just put together a new video over this past weekend uh, for, for a song that's going to be coming out here, and those, those videos are always really creative as well. Yeah, very much so. I'm going to try to do a couple of videos, too. Uh, we'll see what happens. I got a brand new one coming out, you know, after this single. Uh I, I was fortunate enough to get uh, Larry Cordell to oh, wow. to give me an opportunity to sing one of his songs. And, uh, and I, my next single after, you know, after this one runs its course is going to be that Larry Cordell. It was Larry Cordell and Galen Griffin, I believe wrote that song mm. called too far from home. Man, it's a, it's a killer country song. Boy, they always have some great uptempo stuff that, that really is true to the roots of what this music is all about. Yeah. Yeah, I love Larry. Well, I'd tell you the most recent album, full-length album, Opposite Walls, which uh, dropped September 2019, and we talked about the title track to that to lead off the show, and we heard the, the greatest country singer of them all. I also wanted to showcase another song from that album, The Road I've Traveled On. Tell us about this song. Well, I wrote that. I co-wrote that song with, with Larry Simpson. He's a brother from another mother. He lives in Texas, and uh, Larry's a fabulous songwriter. He's just a heck of a writer. Several of the songs that on, on that album were either written or co-written by Larry. And uh, we've been working together. He's he's helped me a bunch with the uh, radio promotion and, and and different types of promotion. He's he's got some good contacts in the music industry, and he just got some great songs. So, but this song, it's you know, it's I don't know if you want to say that when you're getting older, it's not necessarily regrets, but you get to the point where you sort of wish you could go back and apologize for some of the things that you did and change things. And, and yeah. you know, it, it, and, and this song really, it, apparently people are relating to it really well because it's only been out there about four or five weeks. And, uh, I got the latest chart came in today on, on new music weekly at number two on the digital side and number nine on the, on the terrestrial side. So somebody's playing it and somebody's enjoying it. And I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying watching it climb up on the charts. Yeah. I was just fixing to say here. Uh, yeah. I was looking at the same thing here. Country digital main chart uh, up to number two country digital indie chart up to number two country indie chart up to number nine and that's uh that, that means it's resonating with some folks yeah and, and we 
we really had a, a good good run in Europe last couple of weeks. Uh, the top 200 artists charts. I was number one week before, number two this week. And uh, the song that you're fixing to play there was number one both weeks. Well, here it is now, the road I've traveled on. Dennis Ledbetter on Fast Line Fast Track. I wish that I could go back down the road I traveled along and retrace all the footprint left behind since I left home. I'd gladly trade tomorrow Just to buy back all the tears My dear old mom and daddy cried Throughout my wasted years Lord, I'd rebuild all the bridges That I burned along the way I'd fulfill the broken promises that I made yesterday I've been the hearts I've torn apart And tried to right the wrongs If only I could go back down The road I've traveled on Call me an outlaw Because I've broken all life's rules And I've looked into my mirror At the reflections of a fool Tomorrow may not come again And yesterday is gone But what I'd give to go back down The road I've tried on. Lord, I'd rebuild all the bridges that I burned along the way. I'd fulfill the broken promises that I made yesterday. I'd bend the hearts I've torn apart and try to right the wrongs. If only Again, some true country music right there. No denying that. Well, it, that's a beautiful track, too. Tommy White uh, played the steel on that, that album. And, man, mm. Lord have mercy, he can he can make that steel talk. And when you hear something like that, it makes you wonder why anybody ever moved away from steel guitar. You know what? Well, I was in the studio on one of my songs, and, and Tom Harding, my my producer, he said, do you want steel on ceiling? I said, Tom, I want steel and fiddle on everything I do. That's right. Ask me a silly question like that. Yes, I want steel and fiddle on it. 
Yeah, there should be no questioning. What's what's the rest of 2021 looking like for you? And uh, uh, any kind of plans as far as touring goes, or, or what else is on the agenda? I'm not sure about the touring. I'm I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna try to do some specialty stuff. Uh, I'm gonna get into uh, Nashville, and uh, I still got a day job. My day job is gonna take me to Florida for a month, and I got a few couple of weeks off and I got to go back to Muskogee, Oklahoma. So I'm not going to be free to really do much until June, but, uh, I'm going to go to Nashville and, uh, I've got a lot of songs that I need to demo. I've got a couple of tunes that I want to try to do videos for and, uh, do some co-writing like I said with Scott and different people in Nashville. Maybe Jimmy Payne said he might let me co-write with him on one. And I, I would love to do that. He's a legend as far as songwriters are concerned. He'd be lucky if he got you on a track. Well, it, we did that last tr song he wrote was wonderful, and and Jimmy just a just, he's just salt of the earth guy. He's one of the nicest guys I've ever met in my life, and I'm I'm looking forward to trying to get an opportunity to write with him. And uh, so I'm going to be doing a, a lot of a lot of work in terms of demos. I got about thirty something songs that I've written that I that I need to demo and. Then we got to figure out which 10 of them will go on the next album. And then hopefully, I don't know, June, July timeframe, uh -huh. we, we get all those demos done. We might get a chance to go into the studio and do another album. Now, now when you go take a trip like this for, for work off to Florida or Oklahoma or wherever it is you're going, do, do you ever uh, search out some places to go and, and ever hop up on a stage and get to do some stuff? I, I used to do that when, when I was younger, but, um, most of the time these days, uh, I volunteer for night shift. Yeah. There's no BS going on on nights. They just hand you a piece of paper and say, this is your to-do list and you do it. And it, it's just, there's no stress. There's not as much stress involved with it. So basically I'm working and, and, and most of our jobs are pretty rough. They're, they're 13 hours a day, seven days a week, 91 hours a week. Uh, so it doesn't leave you a lot of room to do anything but sleep and eat and go back to work. Yeah. Now, when you're doing all that, do you, uh, uh, are you running through songs in your head? Are you writing songs while you're I, while you're working? I, I wrote about eight songs while I was up in uh, Muskogee. Yeah. Yeah. We. Uh, that's about all I do. And like when I get back, when I'm winding down, I get back at the uh, hotel at seven thirty in the morning. I sit down and I will start writing or try to work out. Some a song lyrics and stuff. Uh, well, it sounds like between work and, and your musical career, you stay pretty busy. Do you have anything else you like to do to unwind or, or get, get away from it all? Oh yeah. I live in on a little place, uh, a little lake and it's a little 600 acre lake called Lake Rosemount in uh, St. Francisville, Louisiana. And, uh, we got good bass fishing and brim and all that. It's, and I'm an avid hunter. I've always been a, a deer hunter and a, different types of hunt, but mostly deer hunting. But, uh, so I, I like the outdoors. I love to fish and hunt and, and, uh, do, do the country folk stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. So, you know, you talked earlier about, uh, you know, seeing younger artists coming into this business. What, what kind of advice would you give anybody who's listening to this, who is just starting on that journey? Persistence. Never give up you're going to be, you're going to get 
rejected, you're going to have to learn how to live with that. Let it roll off your back and uh, just keep going. Just uh, give, give it your all. Uh, develop relationships with anybody and everybody that will develop a relationship with you. You don't know ever know where that's going to take you. You don't know who their friends are, or the friends of friends. And uh, it, you, you've got to develop those relationships in the music business because that's what it's all about. You know, it, it's a, it's a who's who thing. Yeah. Well, if you had it to do all over again, are there any artists that you wish you could have worked with or, or people on your, your uh, list that uh, you would love to have performed with? Well, obviously George Jones. Sure. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I, you know who I really like too is uh, I like the uh, uh, Johnny Paycheck. I love Johnny Paycheck. Yeah, I like his music. I got a, f- a little few inflections of Johnny Paycheck in me, but but I really liked his music too. I'd enjoy him. He was pretty wild though. He might have got me in trouble. Uh, yeah, I, I tell you what, and, I, and now I'm seeing his son John is putting out some new music here. So stay tuned here. We we may have some with him in the next few weeks. Here we're trying to get worked out. So uh, That'd be good. I'd be interested. He's uh, he, he's making his own way. He's he's had a career in the in the army and so forth, and now he's kind of getting back into uh, music full steam, and he's got some great new music out there. So you know, interesting about Johnny. I I, I uh, helped open. Me and a buddy of mine opened for him in a club in Baton Rouge years ago, oh. and he had just gotten out of prison and written uh, "Old Violin." That's yeah, first time, man. First time I'd ever heard that song, and it just tore me up. It just blew me away. It, it did. You think of how many times that song has been covered since then? Yeah, yeah. But he really, he really did a great job on it. When you look at all these artists that, that have come down the pike over the years, uh, you know, you have stayed true to, to this whole whole format. And uh, and it seems like you have really done justice to uh, uh, to, to the whole genre. Well, I, I hope so, because, you know, that I'm, I, apparently I'm not in it for the money. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope what happens is, is that I've done my part to, to help maintain the, the genre and, and carry, carry the traditional music, country music into the future. Well, as you were saying earlier, talking about, uh, you know, just the popularity of this, uh, not only here in the States, but abroad, you know, as we were putting out the promos for this, I was encouraged to see how many people uh, across the world were, were sharing this uh, over in Europe, especially uh, sh- sharing the uh, the link for the show tonight. So I know we've got folks checking it out from from different parts of the world and, and it's still popular and uh, I love to see the growth of it. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad you shared that. Well, I tell you what, before we get out of here tonight, I want to highlight one more classic Dennis Ledbetter song here, By Yourself, which is apropos from a Louisiana boy. Tell us about this one. Yeah, By Yourself was the kind of thing. I was on a job in Mississippi, and I you know, get up on stage, and you tell a little joke every now and then. And of course, the joke was, what's the loneliest by you in the world? It's by yourself. <laughs> and... uh I'm driving back from Mississippi and it's got, it just, it was like a, one of those earworms that was in my head. And I, so I left and by the time I got to Baton Rouge, I had the lyrics and uh-huh. I had to sit down and with a buddy of mine and we put, put a melody to it. And there it was by yourself. Loneliest by you in the world. And here it is by yourself. Dennis Ledbetter on Fast Line Fast Track. 
What do you favor, an up-tempo song like that or, or some of the, uh, the the slower songs that you get into? I like doing the up-tempo stuff, and and, and I, I like to have two or three of them on every album. But, man, I love a ballad. I love a good ballad. Yeah. Now, they tell me that ballads and waltzes don't sell. Maybe that's my problem. I'm not doing <laughs> enough up-tempo stuff. <laughs> but they've been successful, but they just haven't sold a bunch of them. Well, I'd say what, Dennis, if people want to go check out your music or follow your career, where can they go to do that? Well, I'd love for them to go to my website at DennisLedbetter.com. That's a good place to start. And you can actually listen to all my music right there. I don't hide it. and I don't clip it. They, they can go to my website and look at it. But, it you know, it's, it's on and my music's on iTunes and Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Google Play. Uh, what is it? Tidal. Uh, Napster, Deezer, all of the digital sites. It's, and it's, it's everywhere you want to be as far as the digital sites are concerned. Uh, places that you can, like I said, I have a Pandora station. They can listen to my Pandora station and get a bunch of George Jones and other ones in, in at the same time. That's excellent. I think I'm going to go listen to that. That sounds good. I've listened to it a lot. It's, it's, it's a lot of my favorite artists that they mix in with me. All the good stuff. I've been on a Hank Senior kick lately. Here, been listening to a lot of him again. I was it was night four last. I got on a Vern Gosden kick. I, man, I cranked up some Frank, some Vern Gosden for about three hours up in here last, about night before last. Oh man, good stuff. Before that, I was on a Hag kick. I kind of go around uh, to some of these here. We'll get on them for a while, then move on to the next one for a bit. Yeah, I play them all. I had a, I had a. There's a, a kid that lives in the neighborhood that cleans my yard and takes care of my place when I'm when I'm out. And he came over last night, and that's all we did. We were going through Hag and George and and Alan Jackson and all of those guys. We were doing all that, playing a bunch of music, had it blaring. I'm good thing I don't have any close neighbors. <laughs> uh, as long as they enjoy it too, that, that's all that matters. Yeah. 
Well, I'd say what, Dennis, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on Fast Line Fast Track. It is so fascinating to chat with you, and I'm glad we finally got a chance to do this. And and I hope you come back anytime you want to showcase your music on here. Well, we got a you know, we got a new one coming out. We'll have to do something when we get get some more get some new stuff out, but heck, I've still got two or three singles I got to release off of this album because I, I, it's, not, it's not fair not to release them. Yeah, man. We'll write it as long as you can, for sure. Yeah, and I really appreciate you and, and people like yourself and all the folks that are helping us uh, as far as the DJs are concerned, playing traditional country music and keeping it alive. And we want to thank you so much for joining us this week. And we want to say a special thank you to our friends at the Ernest Tubb Record Shop, 417 Broadway, in the heart of downtown Nashville, Tennessee. You know, it's springtime on Lower Broadway and the perfect time to take in some tunes at one of the nearby establishments like Robert's Western World. Then drop in to buy some new tunes at the Ernest Tubb Record Shop. They have a great selection of vinyl, CDs, and merchandise. And if they don't have it, I know they'll find it for you. So stop by and say hi and tell them you heard it on Fast Line Fast Track. Well, have you had the opportunity to check out the all-new FastLine.com yet? If you're in the market for any type of farm equipment or heavy construction equipment, head on over to FastLine.com and check out the equipment locator with the revamped price comparison tool featuring the Iron Average powered by Iron Solutions. Again, that's FastLine.com. And while you're on the website, be sure to sign up for the print catalog for your state or region. It's still being delivered directly to your door, and it's still a favorite resource of farmers and ranchers across our great country. And don't forget to subscribe to the Fast Line Fast Track podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Deezer, Audible, and Radio.com. And be sure to hit us up on all those socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Well, it's time for us to get on out of here. So until next time, it's Brent Adams saying y'all come back and bring along a friend. You've been listening to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group. To learn more about Fast Line's customer-focused marketing solutions, visit FastLineMediaGroup.com and check out our brand websites, FastLine.com, BigAg.com, and PinkTractor.com. If you have topic suggestions for future podcasts, drop us a line at Brent.Adams at FastLine.com.